Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection. It is a Sunday, July 10th. Hope everyone is well. We've got a great great show for you today, a wonderful special guest. Let me tell you a bit about Dr. Shelton, and then we will get right into it. Dr. Kimber Shelton is a licensed psychologist and owner of KLS Counseling and Consulting Services in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Shelton specializes in the areas of cultural competence, ethnic minority and LGBTQ issues, trauma, and relationship concerns. She is the co-editor of the recently released handbook on counseling African-American women, psychological symptoms, treatment, and case studies. She earned her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Georgia and master's in mental health counseling from Niagara University. Welcome, Dr. Shelton. How are you doing today? Thank you, Dr. Ross. I'm doing well. Very happy to be here. I appreciate you asking me to join your show. Oh, thank you so much. This, this is such an important um, topic, right? And, and we've had a special show in talking about Black men's mental health. So today we'll talk about um, women's health. So just to give a little bit of background in general mental health, according to the Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health, Black adults in the U.S. are more likely than white adults to report persistent symptoms of emotional distress, such as sadness, hopelessness, and feeling like everything's an effort. So while Black adults are living below the poverty line, they are more than twice as likely to report serious psychological distress than those uh, with more financial security. So we've talked a lot about about socioeconomic status, poverty, urban stress, all of that impact. So despite these needs, the there's only one in three Black adults with mental illness receiving treatment. So according to the American Psychiatric Association's Mental Health Facts for African Americans Guide, they are also less likely to receive guideline consistent care. So we're happy you're here to talk about cultural competence today. Less frequently included in research and more likely to use emergency rooms or primary care. Now, today you're going to focus more in, more so with African Americans women's health. So while we're thinking general Black mental health, women in general often experience depression at higher rates, twice that of men. So we would, we would think that society would think there's a larger percentage of, of women receiving care. However, we see that is not the case for, um, Black women and only about Black women are only half as likely to seek care. So we'll here have you talk about those numbers today, and let's start by just going into, we had tra a trauma therapist on last week. We talked a lot about different types of trauma. Today, can you focus in for us on the effects of like trauma on the nervous system? Well, thank you for that background information. I think that's really important to note um, because in the work that I do on Black women, oftentimes I get asked the question, why isn't it just about women? Why does it have to be specific to Black women? And there's many reasons that question is being asked. But from a, an informed perspective, people just not understanding those differences or the issues that Black women face. So appreciate appreciate that. Um, and I also appreciate the fact that you are talking about the focus of, of trauma on the nervous system because trauma impacts us physiologically. There yes. is a phys physiological component to it. It impacts us cognitively, emotionally as well. So cognitively, we're having a difficult time concentrating, focusing. Our thoughts might be racing. Our thoughts may be slowed. Emotionally, we could be experiencing greater anxiety, depression, irritability, fear, um, frustrations, anger, sadness. But then it also has an impact on the body. And I think that's one thing that is so helpful for Black women when they're coming into therapy is having an understanding of how trauma impacts the body. Because yes. all the time they've been thinking, I'm crazy and there's something wrong with mm -hmm. me. And then they understand, no, your body is just dysregulated right now. We need to get your body regulated. But trauma impacts the nervous system because our uh Trauma memories and our traumatic incidents, they're coded differently in our brain than our everyday thoughts and everyday memories are coded. They're coded in the back of our brain. Uh, if we look at researchers who are focused on polyvagal theory and those sorts of things, they 
talk about that being the reptilian part of the brain. It was the first part of our brain to develop. That's where the trauma is stored. That's where our fight, flight, and freeze reflex is stored. So we never want to lose that because we are, if we are in a trauma or crisis situation, we need to know how to react without thinking. And there's not, so there's not thought back there. It's just raw emotion trying to protect us. And that back of our brain and that thought, I'm sorry, that flight, freeze, um, flee response that's in the back of our brain and the, our amygdala is connected to a nerve, which for me is interesting. I don't know if other people find this interesting, but this is the one nerve in the body that connects to all the major organs in our body, the vagus nerve or the vagal nerve. So where our trauma memories are stored, it's then connected to a nerve that reaches our stomach, um, our intestines, our heart, our lungs, our airways. Therefore, it's not a surprise when we experience these traumas that we have diarrhea or constipation mm-hmm. or our heart is racing or our um, our breathing quickens because that's the nervous system being impacted by the trauma. So I think it's so helpful for people to recognize trauma does have an impact on the body. It's not that you're crazy or what's going on in my body right now where I feel so hyper aroused or out of control. No, your brain is responding to that trauma by activating your nervous system in those ways. Thank you for that breakdown. And, you know, for our listeners, it's a good connection to last week because the trauma therapist was talking about like somatic type of healing trauma-informed yoga, EMDR. So we talked a lot specifically about like the treatment. And it's a good reminder because when the hashtag um, Me Too movement happened, you had, that became triggering for a lot of people, a lot of women. And I worked with women who it might've been decades before they started to process the trauma. And you will hear people say, well, why did they wait so long? And use that as a way to like minimize the trauma or to invalidate what has happened. But what you said there, you know, it just reminds us that the trauma is there no matter what, but a part of PTSD is avoidance. And we talked a great deal about that. So wanting to keep ourselves safe is important, but sometimes, as you mentioned, regulating the body becomes a challenge. So you talked about women's issues, but then particularly Black women's issues what are some of the specific challenges faced by Black women? So we have the intersection of, you know, looking at gender and mental health, but then you also have race intertwined there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the specific things that can impair Black women from being able to get the help that they need is, number one, there's just a limited number of Black therapists. Um, so according to the American Psychological Association, there are about 4,500 or so Black psychologists, which there's high schools that have more than 4,500 people in there. Yes. So in the entire nation, there's only 4,500 Black psychologists. And about 2% of psychiatrists are Black, and about 4% of social workers are Black. So if there's this idea that I'll feel more comfortable or my therapist is going to be more competent if they share my background, it's going to be really challenging for a Black woman to find yes. a therapist who is going to match their demographic backgrounds. Fortunately, what we know is that a racial or gender match is not necessary for us to get good care. But what is necessary is we have to have culturally competent care. So the culturally competent care is the therapist. They have a good awareness of themselves. They know about their own identities. They've been able to explore who they are and their own biases. They have knowledge about the community that they're working with. And then they have skills that are going to be culturally specific for that population. Regardless of the background, the ethnic or the gender background of that therapist, they can do great work if they're culturally competent. Unfortunately, there's some major areas where mental health professionals routinely report being undertrained in, and that's trauma. Um, and that is also around sociocultural issues like racism, sexism, those okay. things. So all the there's isms. all the isms. There's <laughs> <laughs> limited competency in that. Um, so we don't have to have a therapist that matches our background, but we need a therapist who's culturally competent. And that can be a barrier because when we are working with therapists who aren't culturally competent, the work is just not going to be the same. And that um, we can be dropping out early. 
from therapy. We're not returning to come back to therapy or worse yet. We feel like we're not making the progress we need and there's something wrong with us. So certainly a barrier that black women face in getting the help that they need and deserve is finding that culturally competent care. And so then um, there is more black women coming to therapy than ever before, which is a wonderful thing that black women are seeing therapy as a viable option. They realize it is something that's going to be important. Um, From the Obama administration, we've just seen an increase in mental health parity. So access to care is there, but there's still uh, cultural shame and stigma Mm -hmm. around going to therapy that we wish the conversations about seeing a therapist was, um, I care about you. I noticed there's something going on. You might want to get a therapist. That's not always the reaction we get. It's more of, you need to see somebody, not in a supportive <laughs> yes, <laughs> and in a encouraging way. There's something wrong with you. So this notion of being crazy or there's something that's really wrong yeah. with us, that stigma still certainly exists. But the stigma's not coming from anywhere the Black community has been harmed by the mental health and health field overall. So we know these stories and um, we may be limited in receiving care, just believing that we're not going to get the help that we need. Mm-hmm. And then there's those cultural beliefs about what happens in the family, stays in the family and don't share things outside of the home. And again, that there's evidence of when, people from the outside come into our homes or our communities that we've been hurt. So those Mm -hmm. beliefs came from somewhere, but they can hurt us. And then there's also that idea of um, overall the black community being a more religious or spiritual community, turn to church, turn to prayer, turn to God, not so much turn to therapy. When you can very much have God and prayer and you can also have your therapist, your psychiatrist, (laughs) All those things you can have, all these things yes. together. There's room for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Room for everyone. And we've had a lot of shows with that. I've had, you know, ministers on, um, counselors and ministers and talking about bridging that it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be one or the other. It's the and. Yeah. You have prayer yeah. and your counselor. And I like to put out that. I work with ministers and pastors. Mm-hmm. They come, they come to therapy. So if it's good yes. enough for them to get therapy, it's good enough Thank for you, the parishioner, to get therapy. Thank goodness. And in any helping profession, and it's the same with therapists. So mm-hmm. we see therapists. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with talking to someone, having a sounding board, having something objective. That's also something to think about in the, in the black community. Cause sometimes we have concerns of oh, people going to put our business out there, but that happens in the family. You know, Mm -hmm. you can talk about something and the family shares everything that you might not have wanted shared. Right. That's a difference. Not going to do that. Exactly. Therapists (laughs) don't do that. You know, we are bound by confidentiality. So that becomes again, the safe space that you can have that objective person. But as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. I just want to reiterate that we have had abuses occur when people from the outside come into our home. So it's not paranoia. You know, it's a healthy, adaptive kind of concern mm-hmm. that we don't want to fully lose because their times is protective for us. But we do have to have it in balance to understand how do we know the signs and symptoms of when to ask for help and how do we look for help. I also want to remind our listeners that you can text in questions to uh, 682-710-1101. That's our ITR on texting questions. Again, that's 682-710-1101 if you have any uh, questions to for Dr. Shelton or, or myself. So let's talk now specifically a bit about what mental health treatment for Black women looks like. Can you talk with us about that? Yeah. So Black women, they look like most other women that we are coming in with symptoms of depression. We have anxiety. We have relationship needs that we need to work on. We have some communication issues. Uh, we are not satisfied with what's happening at work. We have been going through COVID. Like everybody else, we could be having transitional issues. So the presenting concerns of Black women oftentimes very much mirror what we would see of our counterparts of a different ethnicity uh, or of a, a different gender. However, for Black women, our presenting concerns are then contextualized or layered by our intersecting identities of being Black women. 
So for example, with white women that I work with, it is so amazing. Like my second session, we are at at age four, this happened. We have identified what the core beliefs are. We have come up with a plan of how we're going to move through it. They can remember Mm. that specific incident that happened that now has created all this confusion or harm in the world so early into the work. They could just dive right in. And that's not the same experience that I have with Black women. The therapy process tends to be slower. It has to be more thoughtful because we have Mm -hmm. so many intersecting uh, components that impact us. Especially in the last four years or so, I feel like every week with my Black clients, before we could talk about what's happening at work, or the challenge you're having with your child, it was, okay, so how are you dealing with X trauma that happened this week? Or Mm -hmm. this thing that happened in the news? Or when you saw, when you saw this actual thing happen, how are you dealing with this? Then we had to first work through the vicarious trauma, the -hmm. collective trauma, the intergenerational trauma before we could, okay, so when you go to work on Monday, how are you going to handle this person or this situation. Mm -hmm. So there's that difference there. And again, because Black women, the Black community, we have been hurt. We have been harmed. We have been wronged. We have been abused by the healthcare system. It makes sense that you're not going to come in and just immediately trust. Mm -hmm. So we have to take more time in building that rapport, um, knowing and believing that this is a trustworthy experience where for communities, those same things haven't happened. The trust just feels more inherent or more ingrained, so they can move through that therapy process a little bit different. Um, and then I think that it's important that we are acknowledging the lived experiences of Black women. Yes. The Black women who come to see me, they say, I wanted to see a Black woman. That's And they particularly sought me out for those reasons, with the belief that there's going to be greater familiarity. And that's not always the case. Oftentimes it is the case, but it's not always the case. We're not a monolithic group. There's a lot of diversity mm-hmm. within the Black um, community and within Black women. Um, but I know that there's things that Black women say to me that they would not Or it would take them a long time to say to a therapist Mm -hmm. who was white or who wasn't Black. And that's a problem. That we need Black people to be able to come to therapy, say the Mm -hmm. things they need to say so they can get the help that they need. Um, So again, that cultural competence is so important. And we can't be guessing or wondering if our therapist is culturally competent. We need to know those things going in. Definitely. Thank you for you know, parceling that out. So, you know, some people might hear, well, why do Black women need anything different? But as you mentioned, some of what we come in with presentation is the same. Depression, anxiety, trauma, whatever it may be, adjustment kind of changes. But though that intergenerational trauma, that is unique to our experience. Also that we live in a society that is inherently, inherently racism is is endemic within everything. So that becomes the difference of not having a break or a space from that stressor. So Mm -hmm. being aware of that, and I agree with you that it's not an automatic match that you have, um, because I've also had the situations where you have the intraracial kind of issues, because there's been that internalized oppression and negative experience in one's own community. Mm -hmm. I've had female mm-hmm. black patients who when they came in later they told me oh gosh I walked in and so I was like oh here we go <laughs> in their mind because of their experience because of right. early life trauma when mm-hmm. they experience with their mother their sisters mm-hmm. people in the community but then that mm-hmm. becomes the opportunity for the corrective emotional experience right. to work through mm-hmm. that that transference there so talk with us now a little bit about moving away from the strong black woman stereotype or phenom. We hear it all the time, right? The superwoman syndrome. Gotta get Mm -hmm. it all done. You know, our Mm -hmm. ancestors were so strong. Girl, what you complaining about? You know what our ancestors had to Mm -hmm. go through? Stop Why are you depressed? You Mm -hmm. shouldn't be depressed. You don't have anything Mm -hmm. to be depressed about. You know that narrative. We don't have time to be depressed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think about that, and this is a part of the work that I do with Black women of being able to honor that ancestral resiliency and that empowerment that we get from our yes. ancestors. We are resilient. We are strong. For us to be here, that means our lineage 
head to our, our um, ancestors, they survived the Middle Passage. They survived being enslaved. They survived Jim Crow. They survived civil rights. Um, and now today we are surviving these everyday microaggressions and yes. just outward racist and um, misogynistic assaults. We've survived those things. So yes, we are resilient. That is in our blood. That is in our DNA. It is well coded within us. Trauma gets coded in our body. Resiliency gets coded in our body as well. Thank goodness, so all- right? <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. So yeah, those things are true. And the strong black woman schema or that superwoman phenomena, it arose from being placed in positions where we were not able to be weak. We couldn't be vulnerable. If um, I, I'm in Texas, it's been 105 degrees every single yeah. day. Mm-hmm. So to be out working in a, a cotton field, I gotta be a strong. I can't let you see that I'm weak. I can't falter. I have to stay strong. Mm -hmm. It was a means of coping. And then as we fought for our rights, we did have to do twice as much work or be twice as good and always be on and be perfect. So Mm -hmm. our way of coping with racism and sexism was to develop this strong black woman schema. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, I mean, this could be absolutely a whole nother show, but the difference in criminal system. The differences in the criminal justice system. Um, so if we look at how black men are treated in the criminal justice system, also black women, but specifically black mm-hmm. men in the criminal justice system, that um, as a means by default, black women have become the matriarchs of our community. Yes. So we have to be strong because we have a family, we have a community to care for, especially when our black men are not available um, yes. to be there to participate in that. Uh, so as a way of coping, we um, became strong black women. And it works. I know for me it worked that I am Dr. Kimber Shelton because I adopted that strong black woman stigma. Yes. And when I was challenged or someone doubted me, my mindset was like, oh, I'm going to show you or you just mm-hmm. wait and see. And I came back bigger and stronger and, stronger. and better. Um, and so it worked for me while... Some of my colleagues who were doing mediocre work, they also got their PhD. So I was doing all this work yeah. and we all still got that same degree. Um, so on one hand, one hand, it helps us. I mean, look at our vice president and look at the latest Supreme Court justice. But then on the other hand, that strong black woman uh, phenomena harms us because within that phenomena, it is dehumanizing. Yes. Vulnerable, vulnerability and weakness are human emotions. Mm-hmm. The idea that we cannot experience or feel those emotions and receive the help and care that we need is dehumanizing. Yes. And then when we do need help or we try to seek out help because we've been strong for so long, people don't believe us. They don't see it. Um, they don't know what to do with mm-hmm. our vulnerability or our weaknesses. So we still can't get the help that we need. And we cannot stay strong because it's impossible. We're imperfect. So our imperfections are going to come through. Uh, but for Black women, that faltering can look like high-functioning depression or high-functioning anxiety. So again, it gets missed or unnoticed because, no, I'm not falling apart at work. Yeah. But when I go home, what does my marriage look like? What is my parenting looking like? Mm-hmm. What is my diet looking like? How am I taking care of myself? Those things can be the cracks in us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate us being um, magical and unicorn. Black girl magic. But I just, that black, I, I appreciate it because we are magical. And unicorns, but sometimes I want to take that horn off. I want to take that cape off. No, it just and we be a little pony. You have to. We have to. We I've have I've to. I've had patients walk in and they're like, "Where did you come from? How long have <laughs> you been here?" And and totally refer to me as the unicorn because, as you said, mm-hmm. those numbers only forty five hundred. That is like. Ugh. Oh my gosh, we definitely, and that's where mentoring the next generation comes in. Mm -hmm. But I love that you've talked about the dehumanizing side because Mm -hmm. resilience, yes, we have that. And as it's Mm -hmm. there as a strength, but also some of that strong 
black woman was created by our oppressors. Oh, right. they don't need mm-hmm. to rest. Let's work them from morning till mm-hmm. past sun sunrise, sundown. Right. Let's mm-hmm. oh, they don't feel pain. Mm-hmm. We can experiment on them. We can, mm-hmm. you know, mistreat them. We can give them the worst non-nutritional foods. They don't need it. So unfortunately, some of that was also put onto us and that that's what we see. Mm-hmm in the healthcare system too. All of the mm-hmm. studies show it in terms of when we report pain, it isn't right. always taken as seriously when we look at the maternal mortality rate for black women. A lot of mm-hmm. the difference is how we are treated because people don't hear us. Because mm-hmm. they think about that that woman, oh, she was in the field, she gave birth and she just went back out there. But it doesn't mean that that right. didn't happen at a cost. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a physical, mental, mm-hmm. emotional impact. And intergenerationally, while we say now, oh, look at what all of our ancestors is, we're grateful, we're thankful, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. lift them up. But mm-hmm. I am sure that they would want us to take the opportunity that they didn't have. So I yeah. definitely, for me personally, I look at therapy as a form of self-care. I look at it as a radical treatment that we have to stop and take time for ourselves. So can you talk with us about that reframing, utilizing therapy as a form of self-care and a form of resistance because our ancestors didn't have that opportunity? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what you were just saying a moment ago, there's that quote of our ancestors' wildest dream was for us to be successful. Even the reframe of that, that our ancestors' wildest dream was for us to be able to rest. Yes. The, the debt has been paid. They have already done all the things that we needed for them to do for us to now be at a place of being able to rest and take care of ourselves to as a form of resistance and to breathe in our humanity therapy is a viable option for us that it is okay for us to dedicate 45 to 60 minutes a week or every other week focus on our mental health and um our mental wellness so even thinking about myself generationally where my grandmother i don't even i seriously doubt therapy was even an option for her. I don't even think that she had access to therapy Mm -hmm. in Beckley, West Virginia. I just don't think that was going to be her reality. And my mother was absolutely a superwoman and still is today, although we're trying to transition her out of that, very much a superwoman (laughs) who just taking care of everybody in our family um, before she even considers herself. I appreciate that, and I'm thankful for that. Because of her, I'm able to be where I am. And even adapted those things myself. I had those messages of never be weak, always be strong. Mm -hmm. But then when I think about my children, I think about all the hosts of nieces that I have. I don't want that for them. We are worthy of taking care of ourselves. Because Mm -hmm. we exist, we are worthy, period. It is not in what we're doing. It's not what we have to offer someone. It's not how we can contribute to something. We are worthy and that's it. And because we are worthy, we're worthy of mental health. We are worthy of joy. We are worthy of a life where we are thriving and enjoying ourselves. So to dedicate that time um, as a form of self-care and resistance. And then, um, especially working with Black women and not all Black women, but again, many Black women I work with are spiritually based. On the seventh day, God rested. <laughs> if God can rest, we can rest. And take care of <laughs> this, yeah, it's good enough for us too. <laughs> we can also rest and take care of ourselves and focus on our healing and our restoration and the therapy can be a form of that, that we don't have to deny ourselves things that are in tune with health and to move away from those oppressive beliefs that we should. Thank you for that. We are worthy, right? As you said, just because, and I think of the other generations, as you said, um, God rest my grandmother's soul who recently passed earlier this year, but so strong and just like that quiet strength and just grace. Um, Mm -hmm. And I can say I've never really seen her I don't think I've seen her cry and I think about my mother and not to say that you have to cry but the question becomes were we given a space mm-hmm. where that was okay because mm-hmm. some messages are 
explicit, right? Well, do this, don't do that. And then other times it's just what we see. So I don't think I ever received that message somewhere saying, well, you can't, but we don't see it that often. So sometimes it might Mm -hmm. be internalized like this is not okay. And Mm -hmm. as you said, the signs and symptoms. So then when we need help, sometimes it's difficult for us to ask for help now because we don't even know how, because if our presentation has to be that it's stoic and that I've got it all together, how do you now reach out and say, well, I'm keeping it all Mm -hmm. together. How am I supposed to say I need help? And as simple as it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Well, I think that we have to find those spaces where we can start to let some of those guards down and let some of those walls down. And again, fortunately, there has been a great destigmatization of uh, of therapy and that it is something that is seen as more viable. And there's also just this push within our community to embrace fully who we are. So finding those spaces where we're able to not be okay is important. Um because Black people are more likely to see their medical provider than they are to, as a first step, mm-hmm. go to see a therapist. We need medical um, doctors to be more competent in assessing formula health issues, too. And unfortunately, not all the time, because the s- symptoms are somatic, is there this, um, it being equated with this could be an actual mental health issue. But um, as a start, yeah, for us to also be focused on our physical health by going to the doctor and then hopefully, ideally, getting that referral for mental health help. But we need to be talking to people and not keeping these things a secret or not staying in silence about it until we can get that support or that help um, that we need. Um, And there's some because we might not even recognize it ourselves, but we have to go and look at our functioning. Are we functioning how we want to? Am I eating how I want to be eating? Am I mm-hmm. sleeping how I want to be eating? Are my relationships the way that I want them yeah. to be? And if these things aren't the ideal for me, or if I notice that things change, then this could be a sign for me to go in and get some help. I might not be feeling depressed, or I might not be feeling anxious, but I don't feel like myself. For me, um, after, so I was initially living in Atlanta and I moved to Texas. And when I moved to Texas, I just couldn't get things going the way that I was before. Um, when I looked at my um, resume, I'm like, what happened? Like, I was doing so much. And I feel like things have kind of yeah. slowed down for me. And I did not understand what was going on until some years when I'm, out, I'm burned out. That's what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. I am burned out. I don't even feel capable of doing all those things I did before. And then I had to think about that some more. It's unrealistic for me to do all these things that I was doing before. And Mm -hmm. even though I was burned out, somehow I gave birth to twins and still wrote a book. So I was still doing above and beyond (laughs) what a lot of other people might have been doing. But I didn't recognize those symptoms of burnout. And I didn't even Mm -hmm. recognize that I was, uh, I realized I was struggling, but I wasn't able to account what that was for. So we have to just mm-hmm. sit down and ask ourselves what's going on for us so mm-hmm. that we can seek out the help and support that we need. And you said something that triggered a thought for me, just the presentation, as you said, not recognizing it. Sometimes in the Black community, we think of depressions like, oh, well, you got to be sad and mopey all the time or mm-hmm. like suicidal, not wanting to mm-hmm. live or feeling like jumping off a bridge. But Depression is on a spectrum and also people don't necessarily know that irritability also can be a characterization the way that depression is manifested. So I think also Mm -hmm. culturally for Black people, that sometimes is more acceptable, like anger and irritability versus Mm -hmm. sadness. So keeping in mind if, you know, you're constantly feeling on edge or, you know, the smallest things you don't, you have low frustration tolerance, what's going on mm-hmm. on with that? It could be depression or it could be anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be clear too, you don't have to be at your worst to see a therapist. You do not have yes. to have a mental breakdown before you see someone. Yes. That we can be on that very low end uh, of depression or that spectrum of anxiety and get help or we don't even have to be having those symptoms at all i'm not satisfied with my life or i'm about to make a major decision i need some support in this those are also a great reason to get therapy the earlier that we seek treatment and the more consistently we seek treatment the better we do 
So I'm not going to be at that severe end of depression because I identified early on I need some help and support, and I got that. Now, absolutely, if you are experiencing suicidal ideation or there's thoughts that are popping into your head that they just do not feel consistent with who you are, seek help. But we don't have to be at our worst to get help. Excellent point, meaning that it can just be wanting to have a place to exhale, talk a bit, you know, learn more about yourself, improve quality of life. And unfortunately, statistically, the problem is, and not just in the Black community with most therapy, that many people don't go until like there's extreme kind of issues. Mm -hmm. So yes, definitely encouraging if you're hearing this today, it doesn't have to be, as you said, that you're at at Mm -hmm. your worst. We definitely want to think of it as like self-care, a therapeutic prevention um, Mm -hmm. as well. We do have it. We do have a... um, question. How can we as Black women interact in a more harmonious way, setting examples for daughters? Please Mm -hmm. advise. Well, we got to get the help that we need, number one. So making sure that we are emotionally well, so then that's what's being modeled to our children. And we think about the messages that we're sending our children. I did hear those Never let them see you weak. You don't cry. You go in there and you do your best and you show them. I did hear those messages. So for myself, being very intentional with my daughters, those aren't the messages that I want them to hear or to receive. Um, even how I talk about, um, talk about and think about my body. Like my daughters, they will never hear me say something. Oh, I'm so fat. No, I want them to whatever mommy's body size looks like. She appreciates that she loves her body and they can appreciate and love their bodies too. So being very intentional and the things that we are expressing outwardly and that we are expressing non-verbally to our children. Um, that idea that um, nobody hit you while you crying. You didn't get physically hurt. Why are you crying? Because my feelings are hurt. That's why I'm crying because I feel you know, sad. Not the, old, not the old school. I'll give you something to I'll cry something about. To cry for. <laughs> right. So my feelings are hurt. That's why I'm crying. And then helping our um, daughters to recognize their emotions, asking them how they feel and what they need. So before we try to solve or fix the issue, asking them what is going on for them and what they believe that they need. And sometimes they could tell us these things instead of assuming what they need. And certainly we don't want to minimize or ignore their emotions. But we have to heal our own traumas so that we're not passing those traumas down to our children and passing those traumas down to our daughter. We have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and then being intentional. And in that intentionality, too. So something that was not a part of my life, per se, down at has changed. Um, let me just say, I love my mother. My mother's great, best friend. Um, but things like apologies, no. there weren't really apologies mm. that were happening when um, parents did something wrong or made a mm. mistake. That's some, that's a, that intergenerational trauma. We can change that. If I do something yeah. wrong, my children are worthy of an apology. I'm sorry. I made a mistake or I messed up. And then mm-hmm. also that models that imperfection, that it is okay for us to be imperfect. I'm not going to minimize or invalidate their emotions um, by not acknowledging that I did something wrong. Right. All great. So just to recap. So first of all, t- taking care of ourselves. So as they tell us on the plane, please, parents, please mm-hmm. put on your own mask before you put on your children's mask. Modeling the behavior because the do as I say versus do what I, you know, am saying, but I'm not modeling. Mm-hmm. That's very confusing, especially for younger children, because they often learn by example. So if we say don't smoke and we smoke, it becomes mm-hmm. tough now to like change that behavior but as you Mm -hmm. said it doesn't mean that parents don't make mistakes we can Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean we can't redirect at some point you also talked about verbalizing emotions I think that's a big thing in our community using our words because unfortunately aggression that's what we learned 
Mm-hmm. We were beaten into submission and then we were also taught by our oppressors that's what we should do to our children. You see the antebellum pictures where like, you know, the masters are holding the the baby um, slaves and shaking them and teaching people like this is what you should do. So yes, it's intergenerational now that it's this idea of like if you aren't aggressive or if you aren't harsh, like the message isn't as meaningful. So definitely teaching them from early on those aspects. And as you said, healing from our own trauma so that we're mm-hmm. not passing it well, you know, behaviorally in some shape or some mm-hmm. form. Mm-hmm. And then just to pull all those pieces together and create an environment where our children feel safe. Because mm-hmm. out in the world, they may not always be safe, yeah. but for us to be safe places for them to express what they need to express, to feel what they need to feel, and to get the healing that they need for us to be that beacon of safety for them. Yes, because we're going to get those messages. We had another um, therapist on, Dr. Yui Hawkins, and he talked about those messages that internally you may be loved at home, but when you go out into the world, you may be hated or persecuted because of the color of your skin. So now you have a mixed message. So as you said there, but what if you don't have safety at home? And then you mm-hmm. also go into a world, which it, mm-hmm. it, it isn't safe. So that could be very overwhelming to the psyche, to our emotional selves. So as as we're thinking about it now, what would you advise um, to our listeners looking for help or support in their mental health journey? Do you recommend going to a therapist? Um, we have a question that came in. Do you recommend going to a therapist before trauma or PTSD or when it becomes necessary for safety or mitigate emotional to mitigate emotional upheaval? Yeah, all all any and all of those points and times, you can go see a therapist. Again, yeah. this earlier the intervention, the better. Um, yeah, the earlier we can get therapy, the better. Um, and again, we don't have to be in a trauma or something major happening for us to receive therapy. We could just not be satisfied with what's going on in our lives or with our functioning. Um, and it doesn't have to be something that's present too, that we could be at a place where now we're ready to deal with some of these things that have happened in the past. So it might not be activated, uh, actively impacting our lives at that moment to still do and get that work done. But absolutely uh, connecting with a therapist, um, connecting with our medical doctors, if desired and if needed, being able to connect with a psychiatrist. And I think that's another place in terms of mental, mental health medications that, that we could be a little bit slower in wanting to take medications mm-hmm. or to see a psychiatrist. But as we were talking about um, earlier, a lot of the experiences that we have are physical manifestations. It's impacting our heart rate. It's impacting our stomachs. We might have ulcers. It's impacting our diets. We have diabetes or obesity. So sometimes there is something organic that we need to address as well that a medication might in conjunction with therapy, treat better than only therapy by itself. But start in a relationship with a therapist so that you can get that referral for the psychiatrist. That's something that's going to be helpful. And then there's those basic things that we need to focus on. How are we eating? What is our sleeping looking like? Are we exercising? Um, Paying attention to these things to give us an indication of how we're doing and if we need more help and support. Um, we can talk to people, especially when I was working at college counseling centers, it was very common for a student to come in with another student, that they had their support person who encouraged them to get therapy and mm-hmm. they would come to that session with them. And that's fine. If you need someone, um, your support person, your partner, your friend to come in to be there with you uh, to get that place of support that you can do that. And then another thing that we could just be doing for ourselves is engaging in writing, being able to get out those things that we're feeling and that we're experiencing, put them on paper or put them on your computer or put it in your phone to get that out so that you can go back and reflect and see what your needs are. All excellent points. Again, you brought it right back to the mind and body connection that they they interact as chicken and egg. So which came first? 
So if sleep is impacted, the body, and there's a lot of cardiovascular disease, right? The triad in our community is hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes. So oftentimes there's the nutritional issue there, as you said, not eating right. Some of that may be behavioral intergenerational like we've learned over time but then the other part is that a person is depressed so they have diminished appetite Mm -hmm. is it emotional eating where they're over eating so being very aware of the body because oftentimes we may connect with that first before we think about the mental and emotional piece and then when we realize what's happening in the body just kind of having that introspection like oh what's going on here I wonder why I'm having all of these stomach aches or you know I'm having a lot of headaches or I feel fatigued my body is hurting so all of those become great cues mm-hmm. we, looks like we also have another listener question um, that came in what are the differences among depression anxiety disorder and bipolar what are some signs to look out for that could be a show within itself but I'll let you, <laughs> I'll let you talk a little bit about that <laughs> Uh, well, very often when someone is experiencing depression symptoms, we see them also experiencing anxiety symptoms and vice versa, because a lot of those symptoms overlap. Mm-hmm. We're depressed or feeling anxious. We can have a hard time concentrating. We can have racing thoughts. We have those somatic symptoms of having a hard time sleeping or sleeping mm-hmm. too much. So we see a lot of overlap in depression and anxiety. That's, it's actually pretty rare for me to see someone who would only have one of those things, although one may be more dominant than the other. Mm-hmm. And then there's different types of bipolar disorder. There's bipolar one, and that is when we think about those classic high manic phases where someone may be up for three days or um, they are doing things that they would not typically be doing, like they're engaged in um, increased sexual behaviors or they're stealing or they're gambling or they're lying, things that are just very uncharacteristic of that person. They're in that manic state where there could be paranoia, delusions, um, hallucinations. And then from that high manic state, then there's a significant depression where that person might not be able to get out of bed or they have suicidal ideation. So this would be that typical bipolar one um presentation that we would see and we wouldn't see those highs as high or those lows as low necessarily with uh, someone who's coming in with depression or anxiety or they wouldn't be having both of those manifestations manifestations but there's also bipolar too where someone does not experience a necessary manic phase but they have a hypomania where they're not going to be as high or as hyper um, but still their mood is more elevated than it typically would be they're doing some things that um, are outside of their character, but not to maybe the place where um, they may be facing criminal charges or um, their relationships are completely disturbed, yet still it's uncharacteristic for them and the depression um, symptoms are there. So bipolar is going to be that combination of both those high and lows. Um, and that, again, can look very different. It can be in a day going from high to low, it could be several days of feeling high and then crashing. It could be being low for weeks or months and then a moment of being high. Um, but we don't see those as significant mood swings with someone who's experiencing anxiety and depression. But again, a great reason to go and see a mental health professional. And there's actually lots of psychiatric assessments and evaluations that we can take that can help us identify more clearly what the condition is or the diagnosis is that we have, which is really important, too, of getting um, an appropriate diagnosis so that we can Mm -hmm. then have a treatment plan that's going to be aligned with that. And there's some... um, um, controversy or disagreement with diagnosis that for some individuals, the diagnosis, especially in the black community, is like, okay, so great. I have bipolar disorder. There is something wrong with me. Uh, and, um, that could be a hard pill for some people to swallow. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, there's something very empowering about a diagnosis. My diagnosis is bipolar one. The treatment plan for bipolar one is this. Is. Mm-hmm. I am not crazy. I know what's going on for me, and now I can get the help that I need. So it can be actually very empowering to have the appropriate 
Diagnosis. Yes. It's helpful because then you can have treatment. So thank you for shouting out psychological testing and evaluation. Because while we're talking about a lot of therapy, it may take time and therapy to get to certain things because you're meeting mm-hmm. traditionally most times like an hour once a week. But mm-hmm. psychological testing is like you'll come in for several hours at a time, mm-hmm. take objective type of tests that have mm-hmm. norms, you know, good reliability, yeah. validity, mm-hmm. and it will help you get sometimes to diagnostic clarification in a different way. Um than therapy. So yeah, that's an excellent question. I think about folks who have, you know, patients I've seen who have been like, well, come on, Dr. Ross, isn't everybody a little um, bipolar? I said, no, no, <laughs> because again, it mm-hmm. is, you know, sometimes minimizing mm-hmm. because not wanting to accept things. But as you said, it's that the mood swings, it's not typical. So when we think of emotions, all emotions ex- exist on a spectrum. So everyone mm-hmm. may feel sad at sometimes, but not everyone becomes clinically depressed. Everyone mm-hmm. may experience like anxiety and nervousness, but not everyone has a clinical anxiety disorder. So that's where it's important to work with professionals to understand what's going on. Because if it is more so clinical, there may be more that is necessary for something that isn't in a clinical range. So, yeah, we hear those terms being thrown out there. Oh, that person is bipolar or mm-hmm. even saying about ourselves. Um, I think I'm a little bit schizophrenic. No, <laughs> let's not. No, it's like, that's not really what that means. No. Right. Let's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to definitely, we're winding down on time. I want to definitely have time for you to talk about your book, uh, A Handbook on Counseling African-American. Can women talk with us about your inspiration for the book and some of its content? Yeah, well, I have to, I love the book. It is so good. It is a wonderful book. It's written for mental health professionals, or it's written for anyone who works with Black women in uh, behavioral health or mental health capacity. Uh, it's so helpful and important. So, like I was saying before, that we don't have to have a therapist who matches our background. And for many of us, we're not going to be able to work with a therapist mm-hmm. who matches our background. What's most important is for our therapist to be culturally competent, and that's what this book is focused on. It is improving the culture competence of mental health professionals who are working with Black women. The majority of the authors, the chapter authors in the book are Black women who have expertise in working with Black women, who have researched Black women, who Mm -hmm. are teaching about working with Black women. Uh, So they're experts in the field, and also they've been psychotherapy clients themselves. So not only are they able to come in and speak about our health from a professional standpoint, that we are also able to speak about it from a uh, personal standpoint. I love the book too, because it's written by Black women, and you can hear that in the book. Because this is strength-based, it's empowerment-focused, it is to build the cultural, cultural competence of therapists working with Black women. However, Black women therapists who read the book, they say thank you. This Mm -hmm. speaks to me. This is validating to me because, again, it's our voice is coming through. Um, And so the book focuses on cultural competence and intersectionality, how our identities overlap with one another and then how that manifests in therapy. We looked at the different types of mental health issues that Black women could be experiencing because, again, Black women, we can experience those things in ways that are different from our non-Black counterparts. Mm-hmm. So it looks at depression, looks at anxiety, it looks at chronic mental health issues. Um, and then we also look at some issues that aren't oftentimes talked about in the Black community, like eating disorders and issues with um, Black women who have disabilities, um, with queer and trans Black women. So we're mm-hmm. looking at specific populations as well, working with college yeah. students. And then we look at different forms of therapy that we could be receiving, individual therapy, family therapy, group mm-hmm. therapy inpatient care, rehabilitation care. So it's a very comprehensive book in covering the gamut and what Black women's needs are and then how we can get that culturally competent care. And it's just so, I mean, the authors, they just did a fabulous job. So easy to read that you can just take what you're reading and you could literally apply it to your next session with a Black woman. Wonderful. Thank you so much for writing the book. First of all, I have my copy, um, haven't delved in, um, to it yet, but my plan is to definitely, um, do that. But I, I can think of my own experience with therapy. Yes, I did not have, um, a black therapist, male or female. Um, 
So it definitely is important to recognize that we need cultural competence in, in the field. So I appreciate that you have developed that and it, it speaks to us. That's, that's what's important. So in addition to that, you have an upcoming training this month, July 21st and 22nd. Tell us about that. Woo, I cannot wait till July 23rd. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work, right? <laughs> it is a lot of work, yeah. But as an extension of the book and want to do more to, again, enhance the culture of competence, on July 21st and 22nd, we are throwing a virtual conference, myself and the other co-editors of the handbook, Dr. Michelle Lynn and Dr. Mahalat and Dali, are throwing a virtual conference called um, Womanness, Worthiness, Blackness, Counseling Black Women. And it's going to be focused, there's four workshops that are focused on cultural competence, which I'll be leading. And then Dr. Danielle Simmons is leading a workshop on working with queer and trans Black women. And then on Friday, the 22nd, we have workshops led by Dr. Lynn and Dr. Andala on the Strong Black Woman Syndrome, Decolonizing Therapy for the Strong Black Woman. And then the last workshop, so all the workshops are for clinicians of any background. You know, we need culturally competent clinicians, period, overall. But the last workshop is because Black women therapists have collected, collective trauma. The last session is focused on our collective healing. So it's developed specifically for Black women therapists. And there's going to be a collective healing experience led by Dr. Candice Hargens, who is the um, CEO of the um, Center for Racial Trauma and Healing. And she also created the Black Lives Matter Meditation. And by Leah Frazier, who's a certified um, meditation sound and Reiki healer who's going to lead us through a sound bath. So that last part is going to be oh, focused on wonderful. Black women uh, therapists are healing. Um, and love it, love it. That, yeah, it's going to be a great experience. Really looking forward to it. It's going to be an empowering event. And that's so much, that's so needed because we have to keep our cup filled if we're going to help other people. Definitely shout out for Reiki. I'm a Reiki master myself. My mother okay. is a Reiki master. Shout out to her mm -hmm. as well. So definitely incorporating the def the different forms of healing. So if folks would like to um, look into information for that, mm -hmm. how can they look into information? Yeah. Information about the book or the conference can be found at counselingblackwomen.com. Wonderful. Thank you. So we are winding down on our time. Before we wrap up, what advice would you give to anyone looking for help or support in their mental health journey? Um, one, you are worthy of it. You are worthy of getting the help and the support that you need. And that you might not find it on the first go, but you are worthy of continuing to seek that help and support until you find that care that you are deserving of. That there are providers out here who are ready and capable of doing the work. We're just going ahead and make sure that you're accessing them. Excellent. And any advice that you would give about finding a, a therapist or a fit shopping for a therapist? Well, fortunately, now, even more so than ever, there's a lot of directories that are focused on cultural mm -hmm. competence. So there's the Therapy for Black Girls that has a directory. There's yes. NO Psych, they have a th directory. Yes. Um, queer um, Therapists for People of Color, there's yeah. a directory for there. So there's lots of specific directories to help you find a therapist. And um, you might be using your insurance or other things, but it should be clear mm -hmm. that your therapist is culturally competent and inclusive. If you have to guess or you have to wonder when you go on their website, will I be, will I feel okay here? Do they see people who look like me? Yeah. Well, maybe not a, a best fit for that to be out front for you. When you go to my website, it's clear who I am and the type of work that I'm going to be doing. So um, those things would be important too. But yeah, there's lots of directories there that can mm -hmm. be helpful. Um, if you follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Counseling Black Women, we have a lot of directory information listed there as well. Wonderful. And shout out to Dr. Jackman in Psych. She has been yes. one of our guests too. And before we wrap up, so you shouldn't have to guess just... For anyone who is like never looked for a th therapist, they're thinking about it. What are some of those signs of cultural competence? Like what are pop words? What are things that they should be looking out for? 
Yeah. So if you're actually having a conversation with a therapist, what's mm-hmm. your experience working with black women? That's a great question to ask. And if your mm-hmm. therapist is culturally competent, they are not offended by those sorts of questions. Um, therapists would be saying things like, you're able to bring all yourself in here. Um, they are able to use terms like oppression, privilege, discrimination, bias, um, social, cultural things that impact us would mm-hmm. be important and that they feel comfortable within their own identity too is going to be important. Yes. And bringing race into the room. So meaning yeah. if it's something that isn't discussed, that becomes a telltale sign too, because they're just, mm-hmm. they're just differences. So it, it's important to be able to discuss that. And if mm-hmm. the, if you as the client don't feel comfortable to bring it up and the, the therapist, the therapist never does, bring it up. right, then you w- would be in a space that won't be as, as helpful for you. Yeah, if you find yourself holding back in therapy, mm-hmm. that could be your own thing that you have to figure out a way of being more open, yeah. but also to check in, is this the right fit for me? Wonderful. So thank you so much to Dr. Kimber Shelton for being here with us today on New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection. Again, if anyone wants to reach out to you, what's the best contact information for you? On Facebook, I'm at doc.kimber and on, I mean, that's on Instagram. And on Facebook, you can reach me at KLS Counseling. Thank you so much, Dr. Shelton. And thank you all for joining us on Intentional Talk Radio. Stay tuned for Everyday Lessons next with Dr. Avila Lenshin and Mr. Taryn Callender. We are so thankful for the information we received today. Thank you, Dr. Shelton. Be well, everyone.